So this is the first class in a series of four on the suttas, and it will be really helpful if you have a copy of the handout. Is there anybody who hasn't gotten a copy of the handout? Okay, good. Um, we'll be getting to some of the material in, in just a minute. There was a question earlier about whether you needed to buy a book, either the blue book or the brown book for the class. You don't need to, because in each class we'll photocopy the text that we'll be studying. But if you, if you want to pursue it further, I really recommend starting with the blue book called In the Buddha's Words. We'll talk about that more uh, to the end as we get into the uh, study specifically. Today's class is going to be in two parts. In the first half, I want to talk about a kind of general approach to this material, because this is not the easiest material to read or to study. So I want to give a little bit of background and, and talk about how to approach it and why we would want to approach it, and some of the obstacles as we do. There's an enormous distance between 21st century Westerners and the India of 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Making this transition involves questions of philosophy, history, culture, social norms, ways of seeing the world, and ways of understanding. Really, when you enter the world of the Pali Suttas, you're entering a foreign country. And it's more foreign than it is going to India today, which God knows is unsettling enough. So you'll meet a lot of unusual people and unusual ideas, unusual practices in the pages of these texts. So I want to give some perspective on how to relate to all that first. And we'll talk a little about why, why we bother. And then in the second part of the class, I want to focus on one text in particular. And that text is found in the middle-length discourses, what's called the Majjhima Nikaya. It's Sutta number 26, where the Buddha relates his own uh, search and journey to enlightenment. So that will be in the second half of the class today. So I'm curious of the background of you all. How many people have read some suttas prior to this point? Okay. And you haven't been put off yet? (laughs) Okay. How many of you have read, you know, a number like up to 20, done some sustained kind of investigation or study? Okay. How many of you have read many, many? Great. Okay. Um, I might bore a few of you. Uh, The rest of you, I think, will have a good conversation. I want to talk culturally. I mentioned the distance that we are at from this material. So I want to talk culturally about where we are in the West today. Having grown up in the 20th century and now finding ourselves in the 21st, we find ourselves with certain, I think, attitudes of mind that make it difficult to make the shift into this kind of study. For one thing, we're starting to use our conceptual apparatus, you could say our intellect, our thinking mind, when we get into the suttas. And this is something that many of us are in recovery from having (laughs) overdone. When you think about our main, the main institutions that have formed us, schools, And the church, our churches, our synagogues, our organized religion, neither of those have been entirely satisfactory for most of us. 
In the educational system, from my point of view, we've been way too intellectualized and there's not been enough attention, if any, given to the inner life, to happiness, and the possibility of development. On the other hand, in religious, the religious sphere, Western religions have tended to focus on dogma a lot and also neglected ways just to increase the sense of well-being and happiness, not given such skillful tools for inner life. So many of us have been in kind of rebellion from our intellectual history through colleges or whatever, and we've been in rebellion from the religion that we grew up under because it wasn't speaking to us personally so effectively. As we connect with the Pali discourses, we are connecting with our intellect and we're connecting with the religious tradition. And both of those things can be off-putting. You're going to get, as we get into these suttas, a clear dose of traditional um, Buddhism. And it will at times seem quite religious. And there will be things that resonate and things that don't resonate. So when I reflect on where we've come, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein started teaching Vipassana retreats in California almost 40 years ago. I think the first one was in 1974. So 40 years on, we still don't have an organized study program at Spirit Rock, for, specifically for the suttas. There's DPP, which is experience and study. We still don't have a, an established study program. So it's kind of interesting. I think it's taken us this long to recover from <laughs> the beating our intellects took growing up. And we need to combine um, this love of learning with um, a delight in the outcome. And I think that the suttas can offer this Again, there are some cultural bumps we need to overcome, but I hope you will find a delight in reading these texts and find that it really enriches your your practice um, as well as your understanding of what you're doing. So from my point of view, I don't think it's my job to convince you that what the Buddha says in these texts is correct. It's just my job to expose you to it and then let you come to your own decision. Uh, It's not necessary to believe everything that's in the text to be a very effective practicing Buddhist. So I like the idea of going into the readings, taking what speaks to you, and not worrying too much about the rest. But I'll talk about some of what the rest is, which which can be uh, kind of off-putting. We'll get to that. I want to try and inoculate you a little bit ahead of time. (laughs) This is the vaccine of what's not to like in the Pali suttas, so that when you come to meet them, you'll be a little bit resistant um, to the infection. When I think about how I want to grow in Dharma personally, the person I think about and kind of aspire toward is uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. How many of you have been to multiple day teachings with him? More than just a public talk, but like four or five day. A few. So, you know, in the public talk and in the opening of his uh, several days of teachings, he's the warm, outgoing bodhisattva of compassion, which will put the whole room in uproar and touch people's hearts and connect on that basic level immediately. He has that ability whether he's at the United Nations or speaking to 200,000 people in Central Park. He makes that heart-to-heart contact. 
But if you stay for a few days of his teachings, he moves out of that mode and into pedantic Buddhist philosopher. And he will explore the subtleties of the Heart Sutra or Madhyamaka teachings or Dzogchen texts and practice with a great deal of precision and reliability. So he has this very scholarly and intellectual side that comes out when he's doing formal teaching and he has this beautiful heart quality that connects with anybody when he, when he wants to turn that on. So in my view, that's the way our practice should develop. We should be developing that engaging heart quality and we should also be developing our understanding of these texts because, I think, it's the understanding of the depth of the text that can point us to a corresponding depth in our meditation practice. Until we start to read what's possible through Vipassana practice, we, we won't aspire to it. But as the texts open up the possibilities and the depth that the Buddha reveals, then we can get an inspiration to, to go deeper, to go further in what we've experienced ourselves. So I believe that the study is a very good um, guider for our meditation practice. One of the recent teachings I was at with the Dalai Lama, he quoted this old Tibetan master, and I've forgotten if he even said his name, who talked about three aspects of Dharma practice. And I think this is true for us as well. And this old master said, when I meditate, I bring to bear on my meditation experience, I bring to bear my study and my critical reflection. When I study, I bring to bear my meditation and my critical reflection. When I critically reflect, I bring to bear my meditation and my study. So there are these three facets that we should all be engaged in in furthering our path, which are meditation, study, and critical reflection. Interestingly, these were pointed out by the Buddha 2,500 years ago in a passage in the Diga Nikaya where he talked about three kinds of wisdom. And he called these suttamaya panya. You probably know panya is the word for wisdom. Sutta is hearing. So this is wisdom, maya means to make. Wisdom that comes from hearing. So this is when you listen to a Dharma talk you start to see things in a different way. You have insights or understanding from a Dharma talk. That's all the form of um, Suttamaya Panya that was available in the time of the Buddha. There weren't written scriptures in his day. So it was hearing, but reading fulfills the same function. We could say reading or or hearing. Suttamaya Panya. Then the second level is Chintamaya Panya. Chinta is thinking. So this is the wisdom that comes from reflecting upon what we've heard in our experience. And we all need to do that. We hear a teaching about the cause of suffering. We hear a teaching about right speech, about the Eightfold Path. We need to reflect, is this true in my life? And as we go through our life in different actions and times and circumstances, we need to reflect, did that accurately describe what happened to me? So it's by this chewing over with our thoughts and concepts that we come to verify the teachings that we've heard. 
And then the final level that the Buddha talked about is called bhavana maya panya. Bhavana means mental development. Sometimes it's a synonym for meditation. These are the insights or the wisdom that comes from our direct meditation practice when the mind has been stilled through the cultivation of samadhi and we are able to see more clearly the way things are, then insight and knowledge arises based on that clear seeing. This is the meaning of the term yata bhuta jnana dasana, knowledge and vision into things as they are. So this is the third type of insight, and this is the most liberating. Sometimes you'll hear, you'll you'll get a deep flash from just hearing. Sometimes you'll get a deep flash from a reflection. But most often the liberating insights come when the mind has been stilled through meditation. And then that still mind is turned to contact with reality, and that's bhavana maya panya. So a complete program of dharma practice involves all three of these aspects. In the 40 years, roughly, that Vipassana has been available in the West, we focus so strongly on the bhavana part because, uh, frankly, I think we were all in a state of emergency. (laughs) I know I was. When I came into meditation practice, I had some burning suffering that I needed to have some cold relief water put on. And meditation was the direct vehicle to that. As we continue and gain more, uh, more ease in our personal lives, then I think that's a very good time to bring in the study element. We have some meditation experience, some degree of harmony. Then we can look for where the greatest depth can come. And then study plays a wonderful role here. It's a little bit, the Tibetans have another analogy that our Dharma practice is like climbing a tall mountain. It's tall. We know there's a long way to go. But they say that um, meditating without studying is trying to climb the mountain without a map. But studying without meditating is like trying to climb the mountain with your feet tied together. (laughs) So we we really need both. I was reminded of this um, map, the importance of the map piece recently. Sally and I were going on a hike with some friends. Sally's my wife, and she taught here this morning, so we're doing a whole day between us. We were going on a hike with some friends, and we got to the trailhead, and um, there was a hiker already walking down the trail. So I just popped out of the car and dashed off after the hiker I saw going down the trail, But what I didn't notice, and then a few people started following me, what I didn't notice is that he was going to a dead end. But Sally didn't follow me because she'd found the map. (laughs) So she figured out where the trail actually was and started going that way, and so we all had to turn around and follow her because she had the map. So studying can let us avoid some of those dead ends. You might go a long way down a certain track before realizing it's kind of a dead end. And the study can put us, put us back on track. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about the background to these texts. This is one of the books that has come to us, the middle-length sayings or the translation of the Majjhima Nikaya. And I'll show you some of the others. It's very improbable that we can hold a book like this in our hands today. 
These words were spoken <laughs> purportedly 2,500 years ago, more than that. And the fact that they have come down in such uh, seemingly complete, not, I won't say completely complete, but seemingly complete and useful form is miraculous. When we start to hear the story about how this book comes to be, it sounds to me like something out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, there are all these uh, mysterious things happening. There are secret texts that are filed away in hidden chambers and guarded by celibate acolytes in caves and forests for centuries and centuries while wars and kings and different struggles go on in the background. And it's, it's amazing that it survived at all. So I want to tell a little bit of the history of how these texts have come to us It'll give you some of the sense of um, the rarity of what we have here. After the Buddha died, a group of senior monks, they were all considered to be fully awakened, came together uh, in Rajagaha in northern India in a gathering called the First Council. And they spent the (laughs) rains retreat, which is three months long, in a group of caves just in the hills above Rajagaha. There were three main players at this gathering. There were many, many enlightened beings, it said, but there were three main players. Mahakasapa was the remaining, I'd say, senior disciple of the Buddhas. Went back a long time because both the Buddha's main disciples, Sariputta and Moggallana, died before him. So they were no longer available. So Mahakasapa was kind of the senior monk uh, remaining. He was a very strict and tough uh, guy. He was an ascetic monk and held people to very tough standards. The second person who was very key was a monk called Upali. And (coughs) Upali had in his memory all the rules of the monastic discipline and was able to recite them at that council and so gathered up all the codes that gathered uh, the governed the monks and nuns. And the third person was Ananda. Ananda had been the Buddha's attendant for the last 25 years of his life. So he had been personally around him nearly every day. He listened to many, many discourses. And if he had missed a discourse, if the Buddha was giving it to someone else, Ananda would ask him at the end of the day, what did you say? Please relate it to me because I want to remember it. It was Ananda's recollection that provided the material for the suttas. Sutta, uh, the literal meaning is thread, but the translation we use is discourse. So when we talk about the Pali discourses, these are the suttas, the actual words that the Buddha spoke during his lifetime, primarily as recollected by Ananda at that first council. The time of this, they're not sure about the time of the Buddha's birth and death, but uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's uh, guess, the translator of uh, this book, was 483 BCE, 483 years before the birth of Christ, the time of the death. So the first council was in the six months following that time. Now, it may seem really unlikely that one person could remember all the discourses of the Buddha. That's quite a feat of memory. But Ananda was known for having a prodigious memory. And just as a counterpoint to that, 
There are monks in Burma today who can recite all those suttas um, at will. So they'll have contests <laughs> and invite them and test them. And a senior monk will start reading a sutta anywhere. They'll just pick open a book and start reading a sutta in Pali and then ask a monk to continue. And the monk just has to pick up and continue. And then they'll go on, pick a different volume, ask the same question of a different monk, and these monks can do it. So there are monks in Burma today who have memorized the whole thing in Pali, which isn't even their language. So I think it's possible that Ananda could have remembered all of that. He had a very clear mind and a very good memory. So then, um, let's take a look. If you take a look on the second page of your handout, it's titled An Outline of the Pali Canon. It's come down to us in what are called three baskets or tipitika. And these baskets are first the vinaya pitika. These are the monastic rules that were recited by Upali at that first council. There are six volumes in um, English translation of the Vinaya. I don't know anybody who's read them all. But if you want a kind of um, Cliff's Notes guide to the Vinaya, if you're interested, Tanisaro Bhikkhu has a really wonderful book called The Buddhist Monastic Code which is his um, explanation of them. And it's a very good place to read around a little bit if you want to get a sense of what these rules are about. There's something like 227 rules for monks and 254 rules for nuns. It's not because nuns are intrinsically naughtier. It's that their lives had to be more protected um, due to the role of women, conditions for women in India back then. So that's where all these are written down in the offenses. It's a whole legal system that the Buddha invented as he went along. It has penalties and ways to judge and how to bring evidence and so forth. The second basket is called the Sutta Pitaka. And this is where all of Ananda's recitations ended up, the basket of the discourses. It's broken down into uh, smaller collections, which we'll get into in a minute. But I just want to point out the third basket is called the Abhidhamma Pitaka. Translates as the basket of higher Dhamma. And it's concerned with a very detailed analysis of moment-to-moment experience. could say it is the description of human experience told completely from the standpoint of no uh, concept of self just moment-to-moment experience of the senses and factors of consciousness and mental factors and so on. And that is seven volumes in the Polytech Society edition. I also don't know anyone who's read these. But there are other guides, and you'll see on the handout it says, if you're interested in the Abhidhamma, a good introduction is the Comprehensive Manual of Abhidhamma by Bhikkhu Bodhi, which has a kind of readable summary There is one teacher in our group who knows the Abhidhamma pretty well. That's Steve Armstrong. He completed an Abhidhamma retreat here in, I think, October of this year, which I hear was really well received. And if you're interested, I think he'll probably do it again if we invite him back. Marianne, are we going to invite him back? Yeah. You said five years. Oh. Oh. 
five years. We'll work on Steve to come back sooner. So these are the three baskets. Um, in terms of the history, I'll tell you the legend behind the Abhidhamma. The legend is that the Buddha spent one rain's retreat in a heaven realm. And it said that the Abhidhamma material had to be delivered in one sitting. And that's why he went to the heaven realm, because it was hard to sit for three months uninterruptedly in an earthly body. In the heaven realm, his mother had taken her rebirth. And and so he, he gave the teachings to his mother in her next incarnation. His mother died shortly after he was born. So it's said that he gave the teachings to her in one straight sitting in a heaven realm, and then daily he would uh, manifest in his earthly body and deliver the, the summary of the day's teachings to Sariputta, who was considered the foremost in wisdom of all the disciples. And Sariputta collected it, and that became the basis for the Abhidhamma. Now, if you believe that, I have a bridge toward San Francisco I'd like to sell you. Scholars don't think it happened that way. Western scholars believe that the material in the Abhidhamma was collected over about 250 years after the Buddha's death and assembled by later monks. They seem in universal agreement on this process and they can sort of track the aging of the assembly of the Abhidhamma. So if you talk to a committed Buddhist in a traditional country like Burma, they will believe that the Abhidhamma came from the Buddha himself. But if you talk to a Western scholar, they'll say, no, it was collected by later practitioners, and so actually resembles more of a commentary than a direct transmission from the Buddha. So in these things, I tend to side with Western scholars. I have faith in their scientific approach, and um, I view it as a later collection, but one that has a lot of um, valuable insight and incredible, minute understanding of the processes of mind and body. So very worth study, but not necessarily the words of the Buddha. So whatever was around, certainly the monastic basket and the discourse basket, was transmitted for 400 years only orally. There was writing at this time, 500 years BCE, there was writing, but it was only used basically for record keeping with things like finances and imperial accounts. So emperors would use it to to note down who had paid taxes and where they had made donations and how many bushels of grain they'd received in the recent tax year. But writing wasn't considered suitable for uh, putting down the highest spiritual teachings because it was felt that writing could get corrupted too easily. Somebody could miswrite a word. It would be copied wrongly by someone else and the essence would be lost. They felt it was more faithful to reproduce these teachings by memorizing them and transmitting them orally from one person to another. So what happened over these 400 years is that different groups of monks and nuns picked different sections of the text to memorize. So one group 
would be in charge of, you know, the first section of the Majjhima Nikaya. Another group would be in charge of the first section of the Samyutta Nikaya, and so forth. And it would be their responsibility to chant these regularly, to teach new people how to memorize them and chant them and what they meant, and to pass that on over the years. So this went on this way for about 400 years. And in that time, these texts migrated to Sri Lanka because one of the uh, great emperors of India, a fellow named Ashoka, became a convert to Buddhism, I think around 250 BCE, and then sent his, I believe it was his son, as a missionary to Sri Lanka to establish Buddhism there. His son established Buddhism there. The transmission of the text was taking place. But a king came up in Sri Lanka who persecuted Buddhism. It was a threat to what he believed. So he began persecuting the Buddhist monks and the nuns and trying to destroy their religion. And as he was doing that, it said that some of the texts were in danger of getting lost. That one section of the texts, almost all the monks and nuns had died out who were responsible for that. And there was only one person left in Sri Lanka who knew those texts. So when it got to that point, the elder said, oh, wait, this is, this is too risky. We could lose everything under this king. And so they decreed that the text should at that point be written down. So this happened about 400 years after the death of the Buddha, about 100 BCE, the first time that these texts were first written down. And they were written down in this language called Pali, which was an ancient language uh, alive at the time of the Buddha most likely, but it's dead today, so we don't know exactly. We believe the Buddha probably spoke Magadan, not Pali, but it, Pali may have been closely related to Magadan. That area that the Buddha grew up in was called Magadha in ancient India. Pali is similar to Sanskrit, but it's less refined. Sanskrit has always been the high language of Indian literature, uh, especially scriptural literature. And it's said that um, if you know Sanskrit, hearing someone speak Pali is like trying to speak Sanskrit with pebbles in your mouth. <laughs> so it's a little cruder form than Sanskrit. But it's complete. It's philosophically refined and complex and very, very workable. So, the Pali Suttas were alive in India. They were written down in Sri Lanka by 100 BCE. Over the few hundred years after the death of the Buddha, what happens to a big group of people after the founder dies? If you observe this, they start arguing. Don't they? When there's not that central figure to hold it together, the arguments break out. That's exactly what happened after the Buddha's death. Arguments broke out, and people started interpreting the doctrine differently. They started interpreting the monastic discipline differently. And this led to a splintering into 18 different schools in about the 400 years after the death of the Buddha. That figure is an approximation because there are some schools that can be considered one school, or if you look at it a different way, they could be divided into even more schools, but 18 is the general number. And to give you a sense of some of the disagreements, one of the influential schools that arose to the East, the Mahasangikas, said that uh, monks and nuns could have money. 
The Buddhist discipline was always on a vow of poverty, not handling gold and silver or money. And this group said, no, monks and nuns should be able to handle money. And they, neither side would relent, so that caused a split. One school I really like the name of, the Pugalavadans. Isn't that a great, a Pugalavada? Their doctrine was the self-existed. So they said that it was somewhere between a concept and an ultimate reality, but that there was something called a self which had some real existence. Doctrinally, that's at odds with most of the other schools, which say everything that you can recognize is not self. So the Pugalavadans had a different stance. So it was only at about this point, 100 BCE, 400 years after the death of the Buddha, that the Mahayana showed up at all. Nobody knows the exact origins of the Mahayana. Their tenets are, their teaching is similar to the early schools, but they emphasize the path of the Bodhisattva, the active role of compassion, and the central role of emptiness in understanding the philosophy. None of them are so different, but it's a different emphasis. And so that has formed the major divide over the centuries since to Mahayana and our school. Now our school, the Theravada, was one of those 18. The curious thing is, all the other 18 schools died out. So the Theravada is the only one of the early schools that has survived in practice to the current day. Fragments of other uh, canons are around. Every school had its own canon. They would rewrite some of the scriptures. They would rewrite especially the Abhidhamma, maybe the Vinaya. No complete canon has survived except for the Pali canon, which is connected with the Theravada school. But as I read the descent and the splintering of these schools, it does seem to me that the Theravada has come down in a very straight line from the original Sangha of the time of the Buddha. So some other schools were clearly splitting off. The Mahasangikas with their different Vinaya, the Pugalavadins with a different doctrine of self. But as I read the evolution of these 18 schools, I believe the Theravada is a straight lineal descendant of the early Sangha. So I feel it's pretty well in line with the original teachings as far as we can know them. So when the Mahayana came along, you may have the impression because Mahayana is almost exclusively the school in Tibet, China, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, you may have the idea that once the Mahayana arose, it took over. And by its intrinsic philosophical superiority (laughs) and elegance of its compassionate heart, won over all the believers that touched it. It's not true. The two schools coexisted side by side in India for about a thousand years. And some early Chinese visitors recorded their uh, visits to India and kept journals and can still be read today, recorded that there, there was actually a majority of early Buddhist practitioners as opposed to Mahayana practitioners in the monasteries that they visited in India at the time. And we don't have a convenient term for all these early 18 different schools. So they're often referred to as um, carriers of Nikaya Buddhism, 
So you know, this is the Majjhima Nikaya. Nikaya just means these collections, it means collection. These collections of early discourses is what the followers based their teachings on. So they were often known as Nikaya Buddhists, or we could call them that looking back. But we remember there are 18 different schools. Sometimes it's just called early Buddhism, Nikaya Buddhism. We can't really call it Theravadan Buddhism back then because that was just one school. But there were 17 others at the same time that all had basically the same philosophical approach. The Mahayana took it off in a different direction. And so over the years, what has come down to us is the Theravada and the Mahayana. Later in Indian history, about the 7th century, Buddhism became very influenced by the tantric practices of of Hinduism. And those tantric practices, as they came into Mahayana, formed as it went to Tibet, Vajrayana Buddhism. So those are the three main schools that we have today of meditative practice. Then, uh, in India, around about the 8th to the 12th centuries, there were successive waves of invasion from Turkey. This is when Islam entered India. And in those waves of invasion, uh, the Muslim invaders destroyed most of the monasteries, most of the Buddhist monasteries in India. So um, scriptures were burned and lost. That's why we don't have the canons of the other schools. Um, Monasteries were uh, ruined. Monks and nuns were killed. Uh, You can even see if you visit Nalanda today, which is not so far from Bodhgaya, you can see the um, scorch marks on the wood where the university was destroyed by fire. And in the excavations they found bowls that look like people immediately were eating something but put their meal down in order to flee the scene because of the invasion and destruction. So basically, Buddhism in in India ended around the 12th century. Hinduism couldn't be wiped out. Buddhism could be wiped out because it was concentrated in monasteries. It was mostly a monastic uh, tradition. But um, Hinduism was in every home, on every street corner, in every family's practice, and it couldn't, couldn't be eliminated. So basically, Buddhism ended in India around the 12th century, but by that time it had been transplanted to Sri Lanka in the Theravadan school and the Pali suttas established there, and through the Silk Route up through Kashmir into Tibet and China. So the Mahayana version was established in the north. The Pali uh, version in the Theravada was established in Sri Lanka. And then from Sri Lanka, it repopulated. It extended sometime, it was probably around 8th to 10th century, sometime in there, to Burma and Thailand and Southeast Asia. And then it could repopulate into India from, uh, from Sri Lanka. So it's very interesting as you look at the unfolding 
of Buddhism over Asia, at one point or another, virtually all of Asia was Buddhist or largely Buddhist. So it started in India, and Buddhism became very popular and coexisted alongside Hinduism for a long time. It spread to the West, to Pakistan and Afghanistan. You probably remember when the Taliban blew up those large statues in Bamiyan a few years ago. Those are from the 3rd century CE. So at that time, there was a strong Buddhist component in, in Afghanistan. And then to the east, of course, it migrated to Southeast Asia, um, Indonesia. There's a fantastic monument in Java called Borobudur. Been there? Yeah. It's very beautiful and impressive. It was built around the 8th century. Um, and then in the north, of course, it became predominant in Tibet, very central in China, from there to Korea, Japan, Taiwan. So you look at that whole swath of Asia, Mongolia, from Afghanistan all the way over to Japan. And for many centuries, most of it was largely Buddhist. Coexisted with a lot of other religions. Shinto in Japan, Confucianism in China, Taoism, and so forth. But Buddhism played a large role. So today, it's a little bit in retreat in Asia. Through the twin influences of capitalism and communism. So slowly coming back, but communism has had a big negative impact in China and Tibet. Capitalism has advanced so far in Thailand that there's just not the energy among the youth to practice the, the way there used to be. Communism also, of course, influenced Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. But it's coming back to India. So that's beautiful. Okay, I think that's what I wanted to say about um, history. It's very inspiring to go and visit some of these old sites in India. I was just talking, Walt and Sarah had done a pilgrimage to those sites. Sally and I took a pilgrimage a few years ago. And you can see the places that were uh, frequented by the Buddha in his lifetime. The Indian government is preserving them and opening them up and really taking good care of them. And it's very amazing to go back and realize what an incredible um, lineage we're a part of. It's been going on for 2,500 years, and it's inspired beautiful architecture (coughs) and art and sculpture, large communities, dedicated um, practitioners, people who've given their lives to the carrying out of the teachings. And we join with all of that. It's amazing to realize that our roots go back that far. Okay. This feels like it might be a good time for a break. Do you all feel like a little stretch and bathroom break? Okay. Let's take, if you can make it 10 minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.